Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we try to make keeping up with literature easy, like being spoon-fed the latest research. So let's take a quick look at everything that we've covered this week. First off, we had early antibiotics for sepsis is important, but are we over-treating? Second, quick two-step troponins combined with risk scores might even be better. Then keeping an eye out for awareness during paralysis. After that, the safety of thoracentesis in coagulopathic patients, and then wrapping it all up with a review of management of the difficult airway. This, of course, is the audio version of our past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by our authors, The Sparkly, Jonathan Brewer, Sam Parnell, Kevin Stover, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. So let's get on to the first article, which was titled The Likelihood of Bacterial Infection in Patients Treated with Broad-Spectrum IV Antibiotics in the Emergency Department and the Journal of Critical Care Medicine. There are many patients who fit into at least one of the sepsis criteria, checking off some of those boxes, and I often see them even mentioned in a lot of triage notes. But what's it really mean to hit, you know, just, you know, maybe a few sepsis criteria? There are a lot of things that can check off those boxes. It's not very sensitive, but unfortunately, sepsis is scary enough that it really stands out of the crowd of things that can possibly cause a sepsis-type picture. But that being said, there's still a big crowd of things. I mean, take for instance, just this morning, I went running, it's 29 degrees out here. I can tell you I probably checked off a few of those sepsis criteria just from going out for a run, but I wasn't likely to be back to remake. To see how often we're getting false starts on these things, these authors studied 300 random patients with suspected serious bacterial infections from four Massachusetts emergency departments. Here, suspected serious bacterial infections were defined as a suspicion of infection, blood cultures were drawn, and at least one broad-spectrum antibiotic was given to the patient. The charts of these patients were analyzed, and in retrospect, the authors were able to put them in one of four categories. And these spread out fairly evenly. About one-third definitely had sepsis. These guys were definitely treated appropriately. And then another third were likely to have sepsis, but there was no clincher on the diagnosis. And then the last third was divided up into unlikely to have a bacterial infection and just definitely not infected. A significant number of the last third, who in hindsight probably didn't have sepsis in the first place, went on to be diagnosed with other things, like viral infections in 30% of them, and even cardiac disease in another 10%. Now, I don't think that this study is like a dig at emergency physicians just jumping on the ball too quickly to give broad-spectrum antibiotics. We're expected as emergency physicians to be sensitive rather than specific, and so it's better for us to most of the time err on the side of overtreating. At the same time, though, of course, we all want to be better at everything that we're doing. We want the least possible number of complications for our patients, and if we have as little bacterial resistance as possible, that's also great. So if we can find our flaws and mistakes, then we'll be better at, you know, making them better and making less mistakes in the future and treating as few people for infections they don't have as possible. And that might include taking a pause to really ask if this patient really might actually have sepsis. So in a spoonful, one third of patients empirically treated with broad spectrum antibiotics for suspected sepsis in the emergency department maybe shouldn't have been in hindsight. This will help inform guidelines and sepsis criteria updates in the future. 
The second article, the diagnostic accuracy of the HeartScore and EDAX ADP when combined with a zero and one hour high sensitivity troponin protocol for the assessment of acute chest pain patients out of the Emergency Medicine Journal. The most feared cause of chest pain, or at least the most commonly feared, is ACS. And so for this reason, we are constantly trying to refine our decision aids and risk tools to take some of the cognitive burden off trying to figure out who's at risk and who can we send home. Likely the most well-known risk score for ACS is the HEART score, which stands for History, ECG, Age, Risk Factors, and Troponin. A new up-and-comer is the EDAX score, which doesn't typically use troponins, but we're going to add them in this study. These authors wanted to see if they could improve these scores by adding a rapid two-step troponin testing protocol where they tested troponins at time zero and after one hour. The data used was a prospective observational trial of 900 patients from Swedish emergency departments. This was a secondary analysis of that data, keep that in mind. Overall, the risk scores with a zero and one hour troponins performed pretty well, which we expect them to do because they're already quite good risk scores. So both identified just under 50% of patients as low risk, so these patients can go home. The heart score did a tad better than the EDAX score, and the heart score had a negative predictive value of 99.8. That being said, EDAX still came in at 99.1 for the negative predictive value. And the heart score also had a few points higher on sensitivity, 99, compared to EDAX, which was closer to 97. If you took out the two-step troponin part of the heart score in this study, then you had a few more people who would be classified as low risk, but a worse negative predictive value. All in all, between the modified heart and EDAX scores that were used in this study, there is no statistical difference in the rates of major cardiac events at 30 days. So in terms of actual patient-oriented outcomes, both performed the same. If you already know the heart score, which is easy to do, it's catchy, then you're probably pretty good to stick with that one because the numbers from this study at least were slightly better. In a spoonful, adding a two-step troponin protocol taken at time zero and one hour to the heart and EDAC scores gave them both negative predictive values above 99%, with major cardiac events rates at 30 days being equal between both scores. And on top of that, ruling out ACS in about half of patients. And now the third article, the ED Awareness Study, a prospective observational cohort study of awareness with paralysis and mechanically ventilated patients admitted from the emergency department under the annals of emergency medicine. Being aware during paralysis is a literal nightmare that I've had described to me by people. And I've also known people who've experienced sleep paralysis, and that's terrifying enough on its own and you're in the safe comfort of your own bed. I can't imagine something like that happening in the emergency department. So this phenomenon of being aware during your paralysis is best studied, of course, in the anesthesia literature, where they've found risk factors such as IV induction agents, underdosing of anesthesia, giving long-acting paralytics, and the lack of proper sedation monitoring. This is a serious problem and could cause real psychological distress for our patients. Up until now, there hasn't been a big, large study actually looking into this in the emergency department before, until now. This was a single-center prospective study that was done in a large tertiary academic center on adult patients without traumatic brain injuries, and they managed to include 383 patients. They were about as vigorous as possible in determining if awareness during paralysis was present. They used a validated questionnaire and then had three experts deliberate over each case. 
After this process, they identified 10 patients or 2.6% of the cohort, which experienced awareness during paralysis. Again, terrifying. They also have quotes from some of these patients, which you can read in the article, and it's, it's pretty chilling. This is compelling stuff. This center favored rocaronium, which actually had an odds ratio of five for having awareness during paralysis. All this really nails down is honestly the importance of appropriately dosing your induction agents, trying to order your post-intubation sedation before you intubate, and then trying to set clear sedation goals with the nursing staff. In a spoonful, the prevalence of post-intubation awareness in the emergency department from this study was 2.6%. Then Article 4, the safety of thoracentesis and tube thoracostomy in patients with uncorrected coagulopathy, a systematic review and meta-analysis out of the journal CHEST. First, do no harm. It's, of course, a tenet of medicine. Now, I don't believe in this motto for a few reasons. I don't think it's great. It doesn't fit very well in the clinical picture that we have today. Because if you're going to do good for a patient, honestly, you probably have to do them some harm, or at least put them at risk for harm. It's a nice enough ideal though, and we all want to minimize the amount of harm that we do to our patients by trying to be as careful as possible. One typically good policy for not doing harm to our patients is trying to stab our coagulopathic patients as little as possible. That being said, being too cautious means that the patients aren't going to get the care that they need. So knowing the broader risk beyond one's anecdotal experience and those around you, it's important so that you're still able to behave at least as safe as possible. These authors did a systematic review and meta-analysis of 18 studies on more than 5,000 patients undergoing thoracentesis or tube thoracostomy with some form of coagulopathy on board, either due to an underlying disease or because of the drugs that they take. So from all 18 studies, or if they excluded six of the articles which were just abstracts, they found that the overall rates of bleeding and mortality were 0% for both thoracentesis and tube thoracostomy. Now, I'm not surprised if you slice up the data, zero still stays zero, no matter how you divide the patients. Even if they had drug-related coagulopathy or only really high INRs or just test tubes or just prospective trials, it all still stayed zero. Now, keep in mind that in most of these studies, the INRs really weren't that high, averaging at just 2.3. Really, I think that the takeaway from the study is that coagulopathy certainly isn't an absolute contraindication to doing these procedures. Many are performed without any bleeding complications. Do I agree that the risk is zero, though? No, that's not true. I myself have seen a large tension hemothorax secondary to a tube thoracostomy just this year in February, so it's possible the risk isn't zero. In a spoonful, there may be a very low risk of bleeding and mortality for performing a thoracentesis or tube thoracostomy on patients with some form of coagulopathy. These authors found a 0% risk, but just read that as being a low risk. And then the fifth and final article, the management of the difficult airway out of the New England Journal of Medicine. We talk about this all the time in the journal feed, it's difficult airway, this difficult airway, that, but it's honestly, it's an important topic. Being able to handle a simple airway is nothing. Anyone can put a tube through a hole and then blow up a cuff. But managing a difficult airway, that takes a resuscitationist. And that is part of being a good emergency medicine doctor. In the United States alone, there are about 15 million intubations that take place every year. 
Only a little over 2% of those actually occur in the emergency department, but that's still hundreds of thousands of intubations. So even small improvements can save lives. And don't forget the ones that happen in the emergency department probably aren't done under ideal circumstances most of the time. From the literature, the incidence of difficult tracheal ventilation ranges from 5 to 8%. And failed intubation represents only a tiny fraction even of that, just 0.05 to 0.35% of all attempts. Now there are two key things that you need to be ready for, and the first one is to try to predict when this might happen. The best predictor of a difficult airway is a known difficult airway. So if you have a moment to check the chart, then this could be really important and valuable information for you. The upper lip of bite test actually has the highest positive likelihood ratio for an anatomically difficult airway. You want your patient to bite at least to the vermilion border of their upper lip. But again, this is going to be a very poorly sensitive test. That being said, most other tests like Malampati just really aren't that useful at all. That only accounts though for anatomically difficult airways. So you always have to be on the lookout for physiologically difficult airways as well. Truth be told though, even if you've done your due diligence and you tried your hardest to predict if it could be difficult, the next thing you need to do is to be prepared to react to a difficult airway. Securing an airway starts the moment that you decide it's necessary to intubate, not just when you're passing the tube. So improving your bag valve masking is crucial to setting the pace for your intubation. If you're having any trouble, then have airway adjuncts like nasal and oral airways ready and reach for them early. Speaking of things that should be nearby, this also counts for superglottic devices as well. Superglottic devices are good, they're considered a primary means of ventilation, and are excellent rescue devices in a pinch. Just like all procedures though, it still takes practice to put them in. Personally, I like to lube up the LMA, get it about to the back of the tongue, sometimes grabbing the tongue if necessary to prevent it from sliding back, and then rather than pushing the LMA down into the throat like you think you would have to do, I more grab the tube and actually push it towards me, assuming that the patient's top of their head is facing towards me. Like I'm trying to commit to Japanese seppuku. That's where the samurais like disembowel themselves like ritual suicide. Anyways, this technique seems to work pretty well for me. Another trick is always video laryngoscopy. I mean, what good are fancy tools if you're not going to use them anyways? And then, you know, have a bougie nearby. That just goes without saying. And then lastly, if it's a can't intubate, can't ventilate situation, then you cut the neck. Remember that any patient who's alive, oxygenated, and ventilated, well, they've had a successful intubation. Doing a crike isn't a failure, so don't put it off. In a spoonful, our author Aaron summed it up really well. Just by saying that you need to take every airway seriously, and know that any airway could turn difficult, but if you've honed your skills and you're ready to predict when they might happen and react to them when they do, then you'll be ready for anything. So then that wraps up everything. Let's do a quick review of everything that we talked about just to consolidate. First off, one third of those treated for suspected sepsis probably shouldn't have been suspected for sepsis, despite fitting some of the SERS criteria. Second, more labs give slightly better test parameters to the heart and EDAX scores which both performed the same in terms of 30-day major cardiac events when applied with troponins, which were taken at arrival and after one hour. From the third article, 2.6% of emergency department patients had post-intubation awareness of their paralysis, at least found in this study. And the quotes from this article don't paint it as a very pleasant experience. 
From the fourth article, thoracentesis or tube thoracostomies can be done in coagulopathic patients. The risk may even be very, very low. And then from the last article, which we just covered, you can't prepare too much for difficult inpatients. Do what you can to see them coming and be prepared for any airway to turn sour. Now then, you've earned them, we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, which is the very same place that you can find our blog, and to sign up for our newsletter to get the very best in learning, to have spaced repetition by combining the blog with the podcast. Now then, our goal here at the Journal Feed is to try to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.